this week on the Back Table Podcast. I think doing some more preventative work, like what is it about any environmental lifestyle risk factors that we could modify? There's some work on vitamin D deficiency. Are there any other substances or supplements people could be taking to decrease their risk of fibroid formation? What can we do to kind of identify them before they're a problem and either using new medications like the GnRH analogs or some of these radiofrequency procedures, something that we can do to kind of stop them before they get to be as big of a problem? I think that would be really, really interesting. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. Welcome back to another episode of Backtable OBGYN. This is your host, Mark Hoffman, and I've got on the show tonight a good friend and another incredible guest, Dr. Sarah Rassier. She is minimally invasive gynecologic surgeon and director of the Fibroid Clinic at Mayo Clinic Rochester, and she's also the chair of the Division of Gynecology. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so honored that you invited me. Oh, come on now. You're big time. We're lucky to get you. (laughs) Are you going to be in uh, Nashville in a couple weeks? Yeah, hopefully it'll be great to see everybody. Yeah, it's a great meeting and I learn a lot, but also it's seeing our friends is the reason yes. why I go to most of these things or the, the the main reason, obviously. I like to do all my important academic-y things, of course, but... It always sounds a little bit cheesy, but I feel like it kind of re-energizes me for doing things like education and research when you see what all sorts of cool things everyone else is up to. Oh, I mean, I leave with a million ideas. It's just the rest of the year I need to maintain that energy and excitement and enthusiasm, but absolutely. No, and it's it's just, we all deal with these problems throughout the year, and then you sit down and chat with someone, and either they're dealing with similar things that it makes you feel better, or they've solved this problem, and you go, oh, okay, great, now I know how to deal with it. So as much as anything else, I feel like it's catching up with all our buddies and hanging out and learning about their families and all the new exciting things in their lives, but also just trying to figure out how to do all this stuff that we're doing. Exactly. So- We like to start all our shows similarly by just having our guests just talk a little bit about themselves, tell us how you got to where you are, and how you got to be doing what you're currently doing. Yeah, so I um, have been at Mayo Clinic for about three years now. I was lucky enough to come right before the COVID pandemic, so that was a, a fun transition. Previously, I had done all my training and lived on the East Coast, so it was a little bit of a funny transition to being a Minnesotan. But I finally feel like I've come through the transition and I'm happy to be a a Minnesotan and and enjoying the winters, dare I say it. So that's been the most recent changes. But I think one of the main things that drew me here was just the ability to focus on fibroids, both clinically and in in my research. So I've really loved kind of developing that more specialized niche within our field. Because I know that you have a fantastic group up there and being able to sort of find your niche at a place is a nice thing to be able to do. I know in my division, it's just me and a partner, and we kind of have to do a lot. And so having a partner like Tadney, who does a lot of endometriosis, and and Dr. Green, who we had on the show, who focuses on a lot of pelvic pain stuff, having everybody able to have their niche allows you to focus on the things that are most interesting. And I have to be honest, I think fibroids are the thing that I enjoy the most about what we do. I think endometriosis is fascinating, and it's tough, and there's a lot to learn, but I just always found fibroids to be the thing that like were the most rewarding cases, the most satisfying cases. So I agree. What percentage of your practice now is fibroids? I would say probably 80%. I still do a little bit of general MIGS, 
and even a little bit of just general gynecology because we actually don't have general gynecologists at Mayo Clinic, which is an interesting setup. But I love fibroids. I I could kind of go on about them all day, but I think they're just, it is really gratifying because in most cases you feel like the patient will feel, if not instantly better, better within pretty shortly after surgery. So I think that's just one of the things I love is the ability to make an impact. I think I share that sentiment exactly. And whether it's a hysterectomy or myomectomy or some of the other treatments we've got, which I'll ask you about later too, but they're common. Folks suffer with them all the time. It's nice to be able to say like, okay, we can we can take care of this. So with your program, obviously myomectomies, and that's why you're here, hysterectomies, are you guys using any other treatment options, any other procedural treatment options for fibroids? Yeah, I don't want to be too much of like a advertisement for our program but with this, but we're really proud to offer every possible treatment option. And that's one thing that I felt really strongly about was offering all the possible things, whether it's medical interventions for shrinking fibroids with our radiology colleagues or the radiofrequency treatments, um, as well as complex surgical options. Yeah, we're just getting Sonata here. Are you guys using Sonata, Assessa, both? Yep, we use both. And initially, I think when I was kind of coming on to using radiofrequency, I had a harder time picturing where Excessa or laparoscopic approach would fit into my practice because I thought, well, if you're going to go through general anesthesia and have some incisions for laparoscopy, why don't you just take the fibroid out, especially if you're comfortable with myomectomies and suturing. But I find that there are some patients who really want even a less invasive procedure, something that's quicker, probably a week or two quicker recovery time, less risk of blood loss or transfusion or just shorter surgeries in general. So I think there are some select patients who really do gravitate towards the laparoscopic radiofrequency. For me, the Sonata or the transcervical radiofrequency is really amazing. So I feel like that just gives you such opportunity for great results with a very low recovery time. It seems like a game changer. We're just going to be starting that, that pretty soon. But I think we've all, as those of us who operate on and manage patients with fibroids, those fibroids were like, they're there. I can see them. You're having some bleeding, probably pretty well medically managed for now. They come back in two or three years and now they're six or seven centimeters or they've got three or four or five of them. And it's like, man, we could have like <laughs> zapped this thing when it was little and kept it small and no myometrial disruption. And I know the pregnancy data is there. It's limited, but it's pretty good. And I don't think of myomectomies as being like a traumatic the uterine muscle either. So I'm, I'm very, yeah. very curious about the pregnancy data with RF ablation of fibroids too. I think it's going to be very interesting. Yeah, I think that's really kind of where the future is going for us. I sort of suspect that like down the road in 50 years or however long, people will think like, oh my gosh, that was so barbaric what they used to do with like the, you know, the major procedures that we're, we're doing for myomectomies, especially think if we could identify fibroids when they're smaller, even asymptomatic fibroids and potentially like stun them and get them, stall them in place so they don't keep growing. Yeah, I think that would be amazing. I think that's going to be the big leap, right? Because doing procedures on asymptomatic patients, right? It's not risk-free. But when I was a resident and I saw a bunch of open myomectomies, one of my attendings used to take a a needle without a suture on it, would stick it into it like these little small fiber, little pedunculated fibers, and would put the bovie on it, like basically cooking these fibroids when they're real yeah. little to prevent them from getting bigger. And in hindsight, that's kind of what we're doing now. But to do it transcervically and have no incisions and have it be coagulative necrosis without the pain of ischemic necrosis. I, I do think that's going to be something that I'm optimistic about it. And I'm really glad to hear you're having that experience up in Minnesota, because to me, it's just, there's those ones you want, like, do I want to do a myomectomy when I know there's a chance I may do a second one in four or five years? It's like, those are not a great case, the second myomectomy. And so I'm excited about it. I'm hoping it does what I'm reading that it does. 
Yeah, definitely. And I think I'm finding the the place for excessa or laparoscopic radiofrequency my practice is tending to be people where their myomectomy would not be easy. So it's sort of like, you know, a complex fibroid, maybe it's a cervical fibroid location or something that's, you know, it's going to be a more challenging case. So not that it's impossible, but when I'm counseling them about the risks and benefits, I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe do we want to just get some volume reduction, if, especially if it's mainly bulk symptoms for them? And I think it really does help with that quite a bit. Interesting. Yeah. And I and I, I guess I think about that when I counsel patients about UFE, because we have a really, I'm really proud of our fiber program with radiology. They come to our clinic. It's been a really nice program for our patients, very patient-centered. But I tell them, you know, we don't need to make them go away. Like you were fine and asymptomatic up until about whatever, six months, two years ago. This is mm-hmm. a time machine. This is going to bring these fibroids back a few years to when they weren't causing you trouble and hopefully they won't grow. And if that's our goal and avoiding a major abdominal surgery, then I think that's an important goal. And I guess what I'll find out when we're doing the transcervical approach is which ones we cannot address through that approach and where the laparoscopic approach may be a benefit. So that's interesting. I've been watching both for a long time, but this is the first one where I was like, all right, I think I think we need this, but I'll let you know what we end up learning from our cases here. So- Definitely. So we've talked a little bit about how you manage fibroids. Tell us about the patients who decide on myomectomy or for whom you recommend myomectomy. Yeah. So I think this is one area where my practice has really kind of evolved over time. I think when we're in medical training, we sort of have this paternalistic way of counseling patients of like, okay, here's the procedure you need. And for most of us, myomectomy was sort of the no-brainer procedure for people that had symptomatic fibroids who wanted uterine conservation. But I feel like I have shifted into more of like a patient-centered decision-making where we really try to share the decision-making and you kind of go through all the pros and cons because there there really are so many options now that it can be overwhelming. So I think I kind of go through and patients sometimes still try to push me in terms of like, well, what would you do if it were you? And I tend to like reply with anecdotes where it's sort of like, well, if you're the kind of person who really prioritizes recovery time, getting back to work, getting back to working out, you know, maybe you want one of these non-invasive or interventional shrinking procedures. If you are really want to do something that's more aggressive, definitive, you know, lower risk of recurrence, here's where we're thinking and try to kind of counsel people that way. But I've also noticed lately that even if fertility is not a priority, a lot of patients are really interested in uterine conservation. So even when we're kind of in the mid mid to late 40s, perimenopausal time frame, I'm seeing a lot more myomectomy patients in that group too. It's, it's funny you say that. I mean, a lot of my practices shifted that way too, where I mean, whether it's sterilization and things like that, where like before it was like, oh, you know, the counseling we would get from some of our, maybe our senior attendings is like, well, they're too young or whatever. Like, listen, I trust adults to make decisions for themselves. I trust that when we provide them with, to the best of our ability, the counseling that could help them make that decision, that when they make a decision, we felt like we, you have to trust your patients. And I think that when it comes to fibroid management, like it's like a buffet, here's what we got. Here's what sort of can be expected for this particular treatment or that treatment. And I think that's what's allowed our program to be successful as patients get choices. And I noticed that in fellowship when they had an alternatives to hysterectomy that ended up being probably their busiest hysterectomy clinic because patients felt like, well, at least you gave me a choice. Ultimately, I decided on the hysterectomy, but I wasn't told hysterectomy was my only option. I realized what the options exactly. were. I decided on it myself, which is a very different place for anyone to be about their own care. And so to be able to offer them everything and go, okay, this is what I want. And people, when I started the program with radiology, people thought I was nuts. Like, why would you give away a hysterectomy? I'm like, uh, that uterus doesn't belong to me, first of all. Like, if you're worried about that, maybe we're in, in a different business here. But of course, what happens is you build the program, 
patients come to see you and some of them ultimately decide on surgery, whether it's myomectomy or all these options we're talking about. But then they tell their friends, oh, they have everything there. And so I think it becomes a great way to build a practice. But yeah, it's been interesting. I think that transition of giving patients options and educating them as opposed to like, here's what you need. It still happens out there yeah. for sure. But I do think that's a really nice patient-centered approach. And I would expect nothing less from Mayo. Yeah. I always say if we're doing a really good job, we're going to eventually put ourselves out of business because the goal should be to get things that are less invasive and potentially non-surgical. And one of my biggest soapboxes is that hysterectomy should not be the knee-jerk reaction for anyone that's done with childbearing or not interested in fertility, because there are a lot more consequences that we're learning about for potentially, you know, comorbidities that occur over time, even if you keep your ovaries in. So I'm a big believer in offering, when appropriate, uterine-sparing procedures. And that was literally what one of the senior attendings, actually, this is a guy who'd retired and like trained all the people that trained me in residency, used to come back to Grand Rounds. But he would say like, after you're done having kids, the uterus is a useless organ. Like it should just come out. And it was like, well, luckily we've learned a few things since then. But yes. So for my mectomy, it sounds like, again, providing patients options, whether it's patients who want uterine preservation for pregnancy or whether it's because they just don't want a hysterectomy. And then- what about your workup? When they come to see you in clinic, they have fibers, they want surgical treatment. How do you evaluate patients? What's your clinic workup? Yeah, so I think we're pretty spoiled in terms of working with our MR radiology team here. We have a really excellent GYN radiology group. And so we do get a lot of MRIs. We try to be thoughtful about not over-ordering it on everybody. But I will say, unless it's a really simple-looking myomectomy, I typically will get some MRI imaging for people just for surgical planning. And oftentimes, especially if they're kind of considering various options, that's helpful to tell them if they're a good candidate for embolization or focused ultrasound or things like that. So I usually have an MRI with some pretty awesome imaging. We use vaginal gel, which is really helpful to kind of, I feel like that's not something I see at a lot of outside facilities, but that really helps with delineation of especially like cervical or lower uterine segment fibroids. And that kind of helps me with counseling, too, about the route of surgery and also for me just planning out, what am I thinking? Do I want to try to shrink this uterus ahead of time? Where would my ports be? How Will I need to do a mini laparotomy? What will, you know, what would the positioning look like? So I'm pretty heavy on the imaging in addition to the exam, too, you know, kind of feeling the width and mobility of the uterus, as well as just kind of the overall fundal height. You know, everyone's torso is a little different. How much room do they have between the fundus and the costal margin? Is it realistic to do a purely scope case or what are we trying to think outside the box here? Things like that. I have a very similar approach. MRI and we're, we're lucky to where we are, I think, because you had done some 3D modeling and printing and those kinds of things. I remember, and anyone who wants to learn about fibroids just needs to look up Dr. Rassier or Dr. Cohen has a lot of, a lot of her work published. Yes. There's a ton out there that you've done, which is amazing work. But yeah, for me, it's that 3D model and I'm, it's looking at all three axes back and forth and back and forth. Okay, so I've got one here. Here's where the uterine arteries are. Here's where IP is. I think this is where the tube is. It looks rotated to me based on where the cavity is. I'm going to have to make my hysterotomy at this direction. Which fibers can I get out through which incision? And try to have as much of a plan before you make incision. And so, yeah, I think a lot of it is that 3D mapping in, your, in my mind of how, of how we approach it. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think that's something that comes with experience. So I find that that's something that the trainees tend to have a little bit harder time with in the beginning until they do more and more of these cases is kind of seeing things in a three-dimensional field, especially if you're a straight stick surgeon where you're, you are working with 2D vision usually. And I kind of sometimes I think liken it to like sports psychology, how you're like running through the game in your head before you actually get on the field. 
So I definitely do that, especially with my challenging cases of kind of like, you know, running through the steps. How am I going to prepare and kind of doing most of the planning before you even make an incision? I've had that exact same conversation with my trainees. It's that like visualizing the win kind of thing. Like, how am I going to actually achieve this goal? Like seeing it in my mind first, it makes it so much easier. And then oftentimes when you get in there and actually see the uterus, you go like, I don't know if you ever get this feeling, but like today we had a case, like I had a plan for you get in there and you go, all right, we're done. Like, okay, big pedunculate, you put your fiber, they put your cul-de-sac, the case is over. Like, I know yeah. all the steps, like, it's any worries that of what might be when you see it, you go, okay, I can boop, 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 see my views, and we're done. Exactly. But myomectomy can be a little trickier because unlike a hysterectomy, the two major blood supplies are four, depending on who you're asking. The fibers can be anywhere, right? And they can they can be any size, they can be any number. How do you counsel patients on your approach? So if we're talking about abdominal, large incision, mini lap. Are you doing any robotics or are you doing only traditional or conventional laparoscopy? Yeah. So I've started to think that I may need to get a little more into the robotics realm. I think especially as I'm like valuing the ergonomic benefits of not bending over and leaning over long laparoscopic cases. But I definitely trained very straight six heavy. So it's like the, if you're a hammer, everything's a nail. I feel very comfortable with just the flexibility that laparoscopy, conventional laparoscopy affords me. So I really like that. And I think sometimes for the the bigger fibroid cases, it's nice to be able to be flexible where you need to start up very high, super umbilically, but then also work down low later. So I really don't use robotics hardly at all at the moment, but something I keep in mind. It's almost like we trained at the same time because like yes. we have, <laughs> I actually just got back on the robot after like seven years, primarily in one aspect to get my residents some more training because they all, they wanted to do more and more of it. A lot of them are doing it when they come out. Like myomectomy, I was like, that's the reason why I got to get back on the robot, like doing all these hysterotomies, all these closures, straight stick. Like, it's cool that I can do it, but like my shoulder disagrees at the end of the day. And to be able to do myomectomies robotically now is like, and in fellowship, I did almost all robotics. So I had to like make that transition on my own because we didn't have a robot where I was operating for most of the first like 10 years of my practice. But I've just gotten back on like within the last year and a little bit of a frustrating curve when you first get back on. But then it's like, okay, this is like. Yeah, I know. There is some like humility required to switch platforms when you're so good at one option because you're going to inevitably go back a little bit, be a little slower, a little, you know, less efficient. Not that we can't do the same steps, but I think that's that's a hard hurdle to make yourself be slower. There was definitely some grumpy Mark moments yeah. in the OR, my first few cases in the rep was like, just keep going, you know, just, it's okay. Yeah. I was like, I'm never doing another robot again. This, is, Yeah. I mean, and again, no complications. This wasn't like the case didn't go well. It's just like, oh, we forgot this thing and let's go grab that thing. It's like extra steps. And we, we've become so routine mm-hmm. in our processes for the surgeries that we do to change it is like emotionally challenging. At least it is yeah. for me. But no, I think, you know, Amy and I, Amy Park and I've talked a lot about ergonomics I will say when you're a cuff closure is one thing, you know, but like, and also most cuff closures are on the same axis, right? Right. The biggest reason for me with robotics was that the hysterotomy, I might need to make a vertical hysterotomy or at an angle that is not super easy from the direction that I'm working. But yeah, that's, that's part of the reason why I made the switch. Um, I'm glad I did. And I, but I also, like you said, it's nice to be able to offer those through a different approach. So just doing conventional laparoscopy for your MIS cases, but Yeah. Well, what's your decision tree when it comes to offering a laparoscopic approach versus a mini lap versus an open case? So I have really transitioned to more like hybrid options lately, which I kind of just equate to thinking outside the box. So 
I feel like I really try to push minimally invasive whenever possible. But sometimes if you have super numerous fibroids, lots of little teeny tiny pebbles in the uterus, or just the size where you just don't have enough room to get your you know, visualization and manipulation, sometimes you kind of have to think, okay, is this better that it's done open? I think one thing I do is I use a lot of Lupron in my practice. So even if it seems like when you first see the patient, you're like, ooh, this is not going to be feasible laparoscopically, I'll still give it a try, trying to shrink it a little bit with Lupron and see if we can get some benefit. So you're doing that for pre-op prep for myomectomies? Yeah, not for everybody, but just for the extreme cases. So for example, if the fibroid is like 10 to 15 centimeters or bigger, then I'll say, okay, let's think about shrinking it. Not for everybody, but I'll offer it to the patient. Or if I really don't even have like a hand's breadth of distance between their costal margin and the top of the fibroid, that I think, okay, maybe this could get a little smaller and be more feasible. But I've been doing a few cases lately that have been really, they've been challenging, but they've really been successful with what I call like a hybrid approach. So we know we're going to have to do an open approach for whatever reason. Like let's say they have 20 plus fibroids in there, but they also have a really big dominant fibroid to where the open would have to be like a huge vertical stem to stern incision. So to try to make it a smaller, more manageable, potentially a fan and steel or a large mini lap, quote unquote, what I'll do is I'll try to treat the dominant fibroids laparoscopically if I can. So if there's like a handful of bigger fibroids, I try to at least detach those laparoscopically and then make a smaller open incision. So trying to kind of think, okay, it's not just MIS versus open, but trying to think, okay, even if it is open, can we make it a less invasive approach? Less invasive. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're saying. Yeah, exactly. I think is there a number of fibroids where you're just like, this is not a good myomectomy case. There's not going to be much useful uterus yeah. left. Or is it just counsel and we'll, we'll we'll take a shot? Yeah, I think when it's like a dozen or more fibroids is where I start to have the gut instinct of like, okay, what are we thinking here? Not only just for can we feasibly get all the little tiny ones out, but how much time is it going to require in the OR, that kind of a thing. But I'll usually offer it to the patient and say, okay, I will get as many fibroids as I can laparoscopically. I might get all 20 fibroids, but... I may not be able to get all the small ones. Is that okay with you? Or would you say I'd rather have an open procedure with a potentially bigger recovery and then get every last fibroid that I possibly can? And this, I kind of also use the mini laparotomy that we do for tissue extraction as a benefit here too. So sometimes with these cases where it is like, let's say 15 to 20 fibroids, lots of little tiny ones, I will just make the super pubic mini lap, um, make it a little larger. So maybe like five to six centimeters instead of three to four. And I can actually exteriorize the uterus after I've taken off the big fibroids. And then, so it's kind of like, again, a hybrid, like it's mostly laparoscopic, but I'm getting the little teeny ones out, making sure I can palpate and use that to my advantage. That's how you do your tissue extraction is through a mini lap fan and steel? Well, I usually, well, to potentially umbilicus is my more preferred location for cosmesis, but if it's going to be a larger incision or if I think I can utilize it for the surgery, so like sometimes if there's a difficult anterior lower uterine segment fibroid, I'll say, you know what, that'd be easier to suture through a mini lap than it would be laparoscopically or kind of thinking if there's a lot of small fibroids that I really want to manually palpate, that's what I would choose to do a suprapubic mini lap so I could kind of use it for the surgery too. I think that it just goes back to your sort of visualization, right? Okay, so if I get this one out, how am I going to get this out? All the different steps. I was lucky in residency and fellowship to get a lot of exposure to mini lap to doing a lot through little just one little fan steel incision i think it's like the most powerful useful incision a gynecologist has and the benefit versus hysterectomy is the uterus moves around you can bring the uterus up to that incision so even for a 10 centimeter fibroids you can kind of move it around underneath the skin uh, you can get a ton done through those incisions and so is there any limit to the number of fibroids 
that you'll offer to remove through a midline laparotomy or through a big incision? No, I think the highest number I ever counted was 101. Uh, that was oh, in a pretty, extre- pretty extreme case. Lots of little really? baby fibroids. Yeah. So I think, you know, it does come down to patient selection too. If you have like a, let's say, 49-year-old, no desire for any sort of fertility preservation who just wants to have a fibroid procedure and they have innumerable fibroids, probably I'm going to counsel them towards hysterectomy. But, you know, for these patients that have a really huge fibroid burden, but they want to preserve their uterus, I think that especially with fertility concerns, then that's when I would I would try to be as aggressive as I can. Are you just making 30 hysterotomies? Are you like just bivalving the uterus and digging them out and trying to close the whole thing? I mean, that seems to me to be yeah a worry that I have is if you're making 30 incisions on the uterus, I don't know that we have that data, but like yeah, certainly something you worry about in their pregnancy. Exactly. So I would say these are not the most common cases whatsoever. Most of my cases are under 20 fibroids by far, but I have seen the bivalving technique. That's not something I use frequently. When I have that many fibroids, I'm going to want to be extra conscientious about the hysterotomy location to try to get as many as possible through each site. Because I do worry, you know, how much are you creating a Swiss cheese uterus that's not going to really give you the benefits you're looking for? 100 fibroids. I mean, I think I saw like close to 30 or so at one point in residency. And I've, I've taken out, I think, 10 laparoscopically or 10 or 12 is, you know, as many as I feel like is worth doing. Certainly straight stick, but 101, That's that's got to be some kind of record. But not one I'm interested in trying to, like the, it's like the six kilo uterus I took out. I'm not interested in trying to top no. that record. I have no interest in doing that ever again if I don't have to. No, me neither. So, all right. So MRI exam, we've said is key. Yeah. Choosing our approach based on all of those things, giving patients options. Let's focus here on like a laparoscopic approach for, and we can certainly bring in sort of what you do for all of them, you know, the abdominal ones as well, but patients are in the OR what are we doing to get through this case and get through it safely and optimize our outcomes? Yeah. I think the first thing I really focus on is the port placement. So, you know, assuming we got the positioning and all that just kind of down pat, because I think you can really curse yourself during the case if you don't place your ports correctly. So especially for more challenging cases with bigger pathology, I'll often start with a a high left upper quadrant port just to make sure I can kind of get the lay of the land and I don't end up putting my ports places where I'm not as happy. And then, like we talked about before, just kind of pre-planning, like, am I going to need to use the Minilab for the case, or is it just going to be purely for tissue extraction and kind of getting all that set up ahead of time? A couple other things that I've been using more recently that are kind of like, I didn't used to have these thoughts in my head. I have cell saver or cell salvage machines available if I have one of these crazy cases, which again, it's not that common, but one of these cases where I think there's a high chance of opening or there's it's a more extreme fibroid number. It's difficult to use with laparoscopy, but you could put it through a mini laparotomy site and suction out the blood to potentially recycle to the patient. So just kind of thinking ahead, like, do I want anything more extreme like this? And then another one that's kind of outside of my usual toolbox is the laparoscopic ultrasound. And I know a lot of other services may have ultrasounds like for kidney surgery or, you know, other things, but there's a ultrasound that comes with the laparoscopic radio frequency device that I just, it's reusable. So I just use it for my myomectomy cases as well. Not for all of them, but for the ones where there's like a couple of small intramural ones where you can't really visualize it or palpate it that easily with laparoscopy. So sometimes it's nice for those little those little intramural guys that you want to make sure you don't leave behind, but they otherwise might be a little harder to, to locate. Those are the ones where I have the MRI pulled up and I'm looking. Yeah. And I go back to the OR and then I'm going and then I pull it up again and I turn around to the patient and go, I think it's here. And then you dig and you're like, yes. oh, thank God, there it is. Yes. No, I think that's a really interesting idea to add to because there's definitely with those like you said they're there they're not 
necessarily small. I mean, but they're they're deep and they're intramural and they're they should come out. So that's yes. a, that's a really cool idea. Yeah, interesting. Does that just go through a ten or a twelve or what? What do you put that through? Yeah, it goes through a ten. So that's part of the planning too. Is kind of like I usually try to operate with all fives unless I have to, you know, do a tissue extraction or a, something like that. I hate closing laparoscopic ports. It's fives for everything yes. unless I absolutely have to. And for for most, basically the only time I ever really use anything larger than a five is if I'm doing a, like a choke point, I'm using my mm-hmm. mini, mini lap. I started doing my tissue extraction at the end, but then I realized, well, I've got a gel point. I can use that the entire time and I can pass sutures through it. I never have to use a big right. incision. So talk to me about why you choose belly button versus, or umbilicus versus suprapubic. Because I personally have gone like almost exclusively to suprapubic because I think in terms of cosmetic, I think in terms of healing, I always felt like the hernia rate, or at least what I've read is the hernia rates appear to be lower through a fan and steel, mini lap fan and steel, than through a, a larger umbilical incision. What, what can you tell us about that? Yeah. So I feel like it really is patient dependent. So if someone is obese, has a prior hernia repair, or, you know, seems like they're more prone to hernia, then I definitely want to avoid the umbilicus. Or sometimes people have sort of like subtle subclinical hernias that you notice on exam when now that you're like a belly button expert. So I definitely avoid it in those cases. But I have some patients that they really would like for cosmesis to avoid any other bigger incisions elsewhere. And I also don't operate using a suprapubic port. So it's kind of an additional incision that I wouldn't already be using for my surgery, whereas the umbilicus, I'm just expanding a pre-existing incision. I feel like I've, to some extent, become like a belly button plastic surgeon over my career. So I really spend a lot of time thinking about how to reconstruct it. And you can kind of get a sense of, okay, this is going to look really good, or this is actually not the best umbilicus for a big incision. Like that's not going to go together well. I definitely feel like I got really good at my super pubics and my belly button plastic surgery skills maybe are not up to the Sarah Rassier level of expertise. <laughs> and I definitely feel like that's an area for professional and surgical development on my end. But because I do feel like it's one of those things that like, and we have large patients where we are. I know a lot of people have big patients, but I just feel like just a lot of complaints about the belly button. People are very picky about their belly buttons. And I yep. will definitely add belly button expert to your list of credentials uh, yes. in, uh, in post <laughs> to make sure we have that in there as well. So I'm assuming that means you're an ipsilateral sewer, ipsilateral yep, exactly. ports operator. I was trained that way too. But for my myomectomies, I was using a suprapubic, I was using that fan and steel port. So I would just would do an ipsilateral, or the diamond, rather, not ipsilateral, but the diamond port configuration for myomectomies specifically. But I think, yeah, yeah. it makes sense if you're going to use that umbilical port anyway to, to do it that way. Yeah. And I think, you know, I've been trying to challenge myself to really only do small mini laps at the umbilicus. So if you have a huge pathology where you're like, okay, this needs more than a three centimeter mini lap to be efficient, then I'll go super pubic for sure. I'd say I'm probably like 70, 30 on my distribution. But so I try to keep it like three, three and a half centimeters at the umbilicus. And you probably do all the same stuff. But my tips are that, you know, the corona or like the ring of the belly button tissue, if you can keep your incision within that to the most degree, it's like an invisible incision at the end. So I usually do a vertical incision through the base of the umbilicus. And if I have to kind of go beyond that coronal ring of tissue that I just try to go vertically, either superiorly or inferiorly a little bit, and that usually heals pretty nicely. Are you going directly through the belly button? Like you just, yep, just cut it in half or do you go around the base? Just like kind of vertically, just straight through. And then this is a kind of like, just yeah, superiorly to inferiorly, just straight through the base. A tip that one of my old colleagues at Brigham taught me was how to kind of tag the fascia to the subdermal umbilical base so that basically you have like the, after you closed your fascial incision, you grab a little bite of fascia 
and then you do like a little U-stitch on the base, the absolute densest tissue at the base of the umbilicus, like kind of in that little subdermal tissue, and then just mirror it on the other side. So fascia, skin, skin, fascia, and this, it really brings it down and kind of recreates a nice any. So that's something that I think helps a little bit to hide the incision. But that's a video that needs to be made, I think, for one of these meetings so you can show me exactly. Because it is like 3D reconstruction in that area. I think some people go yeah. around the belly button. And I've seen like other surgeons will do a big crescent or around it. Yeah. It doesn't look great cosmetically. I mean, the ones that go sort of straight through seem to heal and look the best because it kind of yeah. mimics one of the natural sort of creases and folds in the belly button. So maybe I'll just have to get more used to that. Yeah, but I think I'm kind of the opposite of you in terms of my super pubics. I feel like I get more complaints about cosmesis in terms of that. So I think it's just whatever you get really fast with gets, gets better. Well, I will say for myomectomies, though, if they're getting a C-section, this is, I think I've talked to Tatney about this too. If they're getting a C-section, then they're going to get a fan and steel anyway. And so even if it's cosmetically similar, I'd rather if it's cosmetically not as preferable for our patients, they're going to get a bigger one through there anyway. So... If we're doing it, then yeah. that's what I usually counsel to my patients. If they're patients who are trying to get pregnant, then then that may be an option. But are you recommending all patients who get a myomectomy undergo C-section for delivery? Yeah, that's. I feel like that's a tricky one that I usually try to weasel out of because I'm luckily not doing any Ask obstetrics. Your obstetrician. At, at the, <laughs> yes, but I do basically tell them that I don't really believe in the whole if the cavity is breached or not. You know, if basically if you have an extensive myomectomy involving significant myometrium, I think you should probably get a C-section or at least be counseled about that. If people have more exophytic fibroids where we're really hardly touching the myometrium and it's just more serosal work, then I'll really encourage them to discuss that with their OB. And maybe that could be something that would be a, a trial of labor. But I think I usually just give them the op notes and say, make sure to show your pictures to your OB and <laughs> explain what happened. <laughs> I knew you were smart. Yeah, I think unless it's pedunculated, I mean, we're digging in there and tearing this thing apart to get it out. I don't mean that literally, but like, you know, these big internal, if they're large enough to require a myomectomy, for the most part, we're making pretty big incisions. Or if they're small fibroids, there's usually a bunch of them. Forget if it's in the cavity or not. If I'm making 80% cut deep into the ureal wall, whether the last little bit of endometrium was compromised or not is not why they're having a uterine exactly. tear in my mind. So. I also like to sleep at night, so call me crazy, but... I don't know where that urban legend about if the cavity is breached versus not breached came from, but I really don't think that there's much data to support that. But yeah, I also think if I did obstetric still, I'd have a 99% C-section rate, so I'm yeah. probably not the best person to ask. <laughs> no, I think one of our oncologists was a generalist for like a year, and I think his C-section rate was, yeah, something like 80% or something crazy, but... Watching those tracings is not for the faint of heart, and that's something that no. is why I think you and I are sitting here talking about myomectomies yes. and not not C-sections. But So I think that when we talk about the 3D modeling and 3D sort of approach to enucleation really was what we're talking about. What instruments do you use? How do you get your fibroids out? And then talk to us about closure. Yeah, so for the incision planning, I actually spend quite a lot of time. Sometimes I can be sitting there for several minutes in the OR before I've even made my uterine incision just to especially when they're larger or they're close to the corneal structures, just to really make sure that I feel confident that, you know, once you make that incision, if it extends, is it going to extend into the utero ovarian? Are you going to have enough room to get your huge fibroid out? Like you said, I don't prefer to do vertical incisions because of my suturing position, but do I need to? I spend a lot of time just planning out the incision. I don't worry too much about getting every single fibroid through one incision as much as just kind of making sure that it's very thoughtful, whatever I'm doing. 
I like to use the harmonic scalpel again, just because that's how I trained. And I think whatever you are most comfortable with, you're probably the best at. But I think there's a lot of other tools that are great as well. I like the harmonic because it has a little less thermal spread than some other options. So I don't feel quite as bad about the serosal or myometrium that I'm going through. But I'll usually make my incision with the harmonic and then try to do some blunt enucleation combined with some sharp dissection if needed. It's like the one thing I use a harmonic for. Not the one thing, but like the main thing I use a harmonic for because I like to, when I'm doing a hysterectomy with large vessels, I want to seal them before I cut them. Whereas I I feel like for a, a myomectomy, it's like a perfect device. It cuts, it can help sort of curve and follow the contour of the fibroid. And like you said, it's just enough sealing. So we're not, we're, we're minimizing all the little bleeders. We're not cooking this thing. And I agree, I think it's the ultimate device for a traditional or conventional laparoscopic approach to myomectomy. Yeah. One thing I forgot to ask, so OR setup and those things, what are you doing to minimize blood loss? And I think I actually listened to one of your talks years ago and it just totally copied at least what you did then. So like, I'm, I'm curious if I need to update my protocol. So what are you doing for uh, minimizing blood loss besides obviously surgical approach and technique and, and those things? It probably is not much different than what I would have said years ago. So I try to be conscious about anemia optimization ahead of time. So I really love using iron infusions. You just get so much of a quicker bounce back on your blood count. So I love that along with, you know, suppression of menses or Lupron if it's really severe. And then in the OR, I pretty much universally use what I call like a pharmacologic tourniquet. So I use intravenous tranexamic acid, rectal mesoprostol. One gram IV of TXA. Yep, exactly. And then I think 800 micrograms or 1,000 micrograms of, of mesoparectum. Yeah, I usually use 600, but I think there's some variation that what's been reported for meso, and, and it's tolerated quite well per rectum. One thing our anesthesia team often asks us is in ortho, they usually repeat the TXA. I usually just give it once at the beginning. So, and then I'll use a dilute vasopressin during the case too. That's exactly what I do. Yeah. I, it's for, because and, I probably copied off you <laughs> exactly from your talk. Yeah. And it works great, honestly. Like the number of times I've had to transfuse, I mean, unless someone's severely anemic and, you know, some of these myomectomies your cutting muscle bleeds, but I think it dramatically reduces little stuff that can build up over a long case. Yeah. I'm thoughtful about whether I want to do any structural hemostasis, like vascular clips of the uterine arteries or tourniquets, but I find that I don't need it too much. And I'm sort of one of these, like, if it's not broken, don't fix it. So sometimes for these extreme cases, this is another one of these, like, thinking outside the box things. If I have like a super pubic mini lap for these huge cases, I might put a tourniquet in like through my open incision, you know, just like you would for an open hysterectomy. So make a hole in the broad and put a Penrose drain or something similar as a, a tourniquet. But I don't do that often at all. So I'd say that's more for these extreme cases. And same thing yeah. with clipping the arteries. I don't think I've ever placed, I mean, I've obviously gotten to the uterines laparoscopically and visualized them and if I had to get them. But like the number of times I need to do that for a hysterectomy, like one hand on a myomectomy, I've never felt like that was necessary. I feel like, like you said, if you do these things and you're thoughtful in your approach and you're relatively efficient in your nucleation and your closure, because I think, you know, in residency, we, we did so many myomectomies that were open, but that was the sort of the tenant was speed. Be efficient. Mm-hmm. Like this thing is going to bleed until we're done. So go, 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 go. Just be efficient yeah. with your steps. Don't rush, but every second counts. And once you get those layers closed and you've got hemostasis, like mechanically, that's going to be the biggest way that you can create hemostasis. And I think that other stuff buys you some time. But yeah, no, that's exactly what I do as well. Yeah. I think there are some groups that are are really, really great with using um, uterine artery clipping, like temporary clips. 
I find that on the extreme cases, the anatomy is more challenging for that. So I think it does take someone who's quite experienced with that technique. So, you know, that's an option, but I, I really don't use it routinely. Yeah, I'm, that's not something I do. We've had them in the room. I'm like, oh, this is one. This may be the one. And then it was like totally fine. But yeah, yeah. I'll, I, I know I could do it. But yeah, I'm, I'm always curious how many people are doing yeah. it because they need to or because they can. Just routine. Yeah, it's interesting. But yeah, I, I, I agree. I don't feel like I've needed it. Your comment about efficiency, that's my number one thing I'm always talking about is from the moment you make your hysterotomy incision until it's closed, it's going to continuously ooze. And you want it to ooze because if the Miami trim is ablated, it's not going to heal well. And sometimes you can't tell because you're in your little zone and you don't really see there's actually a pool of blood accumulating by the liver. So I think, you know, just consciously looking at the time, making sure you're making forward progress, especially if you have trainees involved, being thoughtful about, you know, how that is progressing with the efficiency of the case is, is really important. No, I, I definitely understand that zone where you just like, what's the term for like when you're in that, like, you're locked like, in. like time is, yeah, and me is meaningless. You're just working and you go, go, go. And like, oh yeah, it's been oozing down there that whole time. But okay. So closure is and layers, right? Yep. Is it always going to be a barbed suture for you? For me, I'm pretty much always a barbed suture. I, if I know that I've gone through the endometrium, I'll usually do a smooth suture for endometrial, kind of over sewing over the endometrial cavity. And that's, I don't know that there's any data. It's just more so that's how I would do it open. So I'm trying to replicate it laparoscopically. But I do the exact same thing. I just feel better knowing that whatever's inside is smooth and maybe would reduce the risk of there being intrauterine adhesions. Yeah. And I have some colleagues that use barbed, but I'm sh so I'm sure it's fine. But, you know, that's just kind of how I do it. And yeah, I try to think about obliterating the dead space. So there's not really a pocket for hematomas to form as much. So this is the part that I think is the hardest for people to grasp when they're learning is sort of how to close this huge gaping hysterotomy and like make sure that the Miami trim really approximates well and that you're, I kind of equate it to like closing a book or closing a clamshell, just kind of getting it to rebuild itself. So I do multiple, multiple layers with the barb suture and then a, a separate serosal closure. And the same vision in my mind is almost like you have to like see a building that's fallen down and like put it back together like one floor at a yeah. time. And like it's without fail when these big ones, you start closing the inner layers. You're like, is this the one that just never comes together? Is this the right. one that we, because it looks like it's not going to close. And then with each layer, it's boom, boom. And then by the end, you know, I say the same thing up. Oh, it's looking a little more uterine again. But yeah, as long as you just close the dead spaces back and forth and back and forth and just put it together like a, like a book, just closing it. And you almost have to sort of visualize how it's going to go together. And I'm going to have to bring this part here and this part there. Exactly. I think that is tough for trainees just to see that. There was a, a study I remember from a while ago that looked at the published cases of uterine rupture after myomectomy. And I remember that one of the key things that was common in all the reported cases was the few number of layers. So it, it maybe it's just like one huge layer or, you know, so I truly try to focus on like a multi-layer closure, just getting it to be as, I describe it to patients as like a plastic surgery reconstruction of the uterus. So it really is like rebuilding the uterine wall. No, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I think in getting deep enough too, I think make small skin incisions, but make the big enough uterine incision that you can get in, see deeply. If it's an open case, get your finger in there and feel how deep it is. Um, making sure, like you said, you're not leaving any dead spaces because it may look close above and there's a big giant hematoma forming below. So yeah. if you have to expand, extend the hysterotomy to allow yourself to get a deeper closure, I know it's like heartbreaking to think about, you know, making it bigger, but if it means you get to close it better, it's something we teach for sure. 
And I also think just, especially for people that are just starting out, it's not the absolute worst thing in the world to open or to create a small mini lab. Like if you're not getting an adequate closure, it's not laparoscopic or die. You know, it has to be, you know, what's in the patient's best interest. So I think thankfully that doesn't happen often. But if you feel like the closure is just not going to be coming together, that'd be an indication for a little bigger incision to make that more optimal. Yeah. And whether it's you by yourself and you have to just, no cowboys here, right? Like do what's best and what's safe. You and I are in places where if I need to call someone to come take a look or whatever, we can. And Yeah. But yeah, I, I do think myomectomy is the, one of the cases. My, myomectomy is an endosurgery also, but it's one of those that like, it's tough to do four years of residency and come out, in my opinion, and feel confident doing and comfortable doing a laparoscopic myomectomy. There's a lot of moving parts and a lot of technical challenges to those cases that I think it's tough to pick that up in four years. And I think that's one of the big things for MIGS fellowships or whatever we're going to call it going forward is getting a lot of touches and a lot of reps on myomectomies because those are ones that are fun, great cases, but learning can be challenging. And I think sometimes even the the fibroids that seem a little bit easier, like the exophytic fibroids or that you're on a pedicle and people might be kind of mistakenly think that they're they're easier, but those can bleed quite a bit. Well, they make the mistake of lopping them off at the base, right? Like that's Exactly. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You have to make a little like a turtleneck like a, a turtleneck around it so you have some cirrhosis because it will it, otherwise it'll retract and you'll just have a big ulcer that you'll never stop the bleeding so you have yeah those are easy if you do them right if you do them wrong boy will they well those are the ones yeah. that bleed the worst sometimes exactly so tissue extraction i know we've talked about this endlessly in the last 12 years of our careers but tell us a little bit about how you get fibroids out Yeah, I'm a huge proponent of contained extraction. So I think, in my opinion, everything should be done within a containment bag when feasible. It can be power morselation if you have it or you want to do that and the patient's amenable to it. I usually do manual extraction with a scalpel. But I have heard a lot of people say, you know, well, the cat's already out of the bag. If you're doing a myomectomy, the fibroid has been dissected out. You could be spreading cells through the cavity. And that's definitely true. And I explain that to patients that this is not an oncologically sterile procedure. This is going to potentially disseminate some cells from just enucleating the fibroid. But I think that the potential for leaving little tissue pieces or leaving little fibroid chunks in there as you're morselating is really significant. And we're seeing more and more cases of these peritoneal fibroids after prior myomectomy or prior hysterectomy. And those are pretty morbid in terms of if you have to go in there and reoperate on them in some cases. So interesting. I like the containment bag. I think it doesn't eliminate the risk, but it might minimize the chance of leaving a little fibroid piece behind. No question with the mechanical morselator. We were shooting little pieces of fibroid bits everywhere. And I think that we're morselating by hand as well now. There's little bits, the little bits, and it just keeps it together. I mean, there's a lot of the fibroids, yeah. putting them in a bag. It's a smart way to do it. Are you using like a fishing line at all to keep them like... so? If I have a lot of tiny fibroids, I'll kind of do that, like create a string of pearls where I have a suture that's in there. And then as I'm collecting them, I'll just string them up. Or if you already had a mini lap for the case, like let's just say you made your superputic mini lap at the beginning, I'll just take out the smaller fibroids as I go just to avoid losing track of them. That's the worst. You don't want to lose track of it and then spend forever searching for small oh, fibroids. 30, 45 minutes looking for that yeah. one. Make sure you count count as you go because otherwise... Was there another fibroid? You don't want to find that MRI in six months and realize you you left it there for sure. I also like to do what I call excessive irrigation. So I sort of say I'm like in recovery for being an over-irrigator because at the end of the case, there have been fibroids potentially sitting in the pelvis the whole time. So I just try to do several liters of irrigation to ideally try to dilute if there's any residual tissue spill or, or cellular spillage that's in there. 
And then I think another option is the posterior cul-de-sac is another opportunity for removal that I don't use that often, but there may be some patients who umbilical or suprapubic is not going to be either a good option or necessary. And potentially you can take some fibroids out through through a posterior culpotomy and that the vagina kind of accommodates stretching a little bit nicer too. So you can potentially more slate that way. When I was retraining on the robot, that was kind of funny because the guy was like, "Have have you done this before? But I had to watch a surgeon, or I got, it was a really nice guy. It was a good surgeon. I got to watch a guy operating, and he took four or five or six fibers out through a posterior colpotomy, and it looked super smooth the way he did it. But I guess I'm just, I get a little nervous about, number one, any type of vaginal incision to or infection. But also, again, if they're going to get a C-section, if this is a patient who we already know they're going to get a C-section, I don't know. I see the value in all of it, and I think it's another good option, like for V-notes, for example. Are you doing V-notes at all? We're talking about it. I haven't done any cases, but I think it's interesting for select people, not for every case, for sure. My partners have done a few. We've we've done the training and stuff, but that was one of those, like, I felt like if you could learn that, doing the posterior colpotomy for tissue extraction would be very similar and sort of a, a similar approach that would allow you to get comfortable doing that as well. I think it's important to talk to the patients, too, because especially if some of these fibroid patients are young, reproductive age, sexually active, they might not want a vaginal incision that's going to potentially have a little longer pelvic rest or, God forbid, some sort of dyspareunia happens from it. So I don't think issues with it are common, but it is important, I think, to kind of chat with the patient ahead of time and see what, what their preference would be. That's great. I think we've gone over a lot. I think your process is, I mean, you've seen as many of these as anybody. I think your insight is invaluable. And again, the reason why we do this show, if you and I were in Nashville in a few weeks talking about this, I would be talking to you about this because I'm genuinely curious about what you're doing and the fact that we get to do this and now have a few other people listen to it afterwards, I think is is awesome. Tell me about what the future for myomectomy looks like in your mind. Well, I think like we were talking about putting ourselves out of business, doing some more preventative work, like what is it about, you know, and any environmental lifestyle risk factors that we could modify? There's some work on vitamin D deficiency. Are there any other substances or supplements people could be taking to decrease their risk of fibroid formation? What can we do to kind of identify them when they're before they're a problem and either using new medications like the GnRH analogs or some of these radiofrequency procedures, something that we can do to kind of stop them before they get to be as big of a problem? I think that would be really, really interesting. No, I think when I tell people, med students who are like picking their profession or their specialty, I'm like, imagine whatever that procedure you love to do, imagine we come up with a pill that makes that procedure obsolete. Would you still like that specialty? So if you're curious about the medicine, if you're curious about treating fibroids, being a gynecologic surgeon is fantastic. If you just like myomectomies, think about what 30 years from now looks like because your career will be, a big chunk of that will be long after that stuff can be developed. So I think there's a lot to be said for trying to minimize the number of myomectomies we do. I think these technologies we talked about earlier on this evening are going to be things that hopefully prevent the number of myomectomies, at least certainly the big ones down the road. And I am excited about that for sure. And I think there's a lot of work to be done with just advocacy and sort of patient education, especially in groups like Black women who tend to get fibroids earlier or have more aggressive disease and just kind of empowering people to really find these things before they become the 15 centimeter, you know, that requires a huge surgery. Oh, I had one more question. Lupron. I was always taught in residency, Lupron messes with the fibroids, makes them mushy, hard to enucleate. Sounds like you're using it all the time for myomectomies. And I've had a couple that I've done that other providers had given them Lupron. I was like, oh man, this is going to be tough. And it wasn't. It was like totally fine. 
Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think there are some cases where the fibroid is degenerated either naturally or from Lupron, where the tissue planes can be a little bit more yucky from degeneration, or if you have like an adenomyoma picture. But in general, I don't shy away from Lupron for that reason. I think sometimes if you have a lot of little tiny ones, it can take something from like five millimeters to being almost impossible to find. So that's one consideration too. But yeah, I use Lupron pretty liberally. And I think it'll be nice if we can use something like Elagolix as well, avoid the flare effect that people have with the Lupron. And then potentially if the patient has an adverse reaction, they can just stop it as opposed to waiting for the the injection to wear off. So that'll be really interesting too. Are you using much of the GNRH antagonists? Yeah, we offer them to a lot of patients. I feel like the financial hurdles are still quite significant. I feel like that's true with Lupron too, though. Is it easier for you guys to get Lupron where you are than some of these yeah. newer pills? We can usually get Lupron approved for the pre-surgical indication for fibroids. Okay. I think for Elagolix, I've had a really hard time getting that for fibroids. It seems like it's only for endometriosis that people, insurers, are willing to do that. We've been, had a few cases of really difficult parasitic fibroids where they're not operable and thinking, okay, can we use these GnRH analogs for trying to manage this? And, and that's been hard to get insurance approval for anything that's off the traditional indication. But I think it's a good idea for sure. So much cool stuff coming. Yeah, yeah. it's interesting. And all the genetic stuff that we have, we have no idea about, right? And all the targeted therapies that we're just like totally in the dark about. So yeah. I mean, this- yeah. It's kind of embarrassing, honestly, when patients ask us, what causes fibroids? Why did I get this? And it's, it is the same as endo. It's kind of embarrassing. You have to say it's been how many hundreds of years and we, we don't really know. You know, here's some possible things, but it's a lot of unanswered questions. I had the same exact conversation with my patients like, sorry. Anyway, here's what we know we can do about it, even though it's yeah. there's certainly an opportunity to learn a whole lot more. It'd be nice if we knew where this stuff came from so we could, like you said, address the root cause as opposed to just like dealing with it at the end of the day. But in the meantime, until those things come along, I think all of us now know a little bit better how to do myomectomies from Sarah Rastier. Thanks so much for being on the show. I know that your time is valuable and we are so grateful that you allowed us to pick your brain a little bit this evening. It's so good to yeah. see you and I am really looking forward to hanging out in a few weeks. Yeah, definitely. I think it's so cool that we have such similar practice patterns, even though we trained at different spots. So I think great minds think alike. It, it was really nice chatting with you. Yeah, it was great. No, because I have the exact same feeling about it because we had very different training programs, different practices over the last dozen or so years. And we've sort of like ended up from doing this a long time and seeing a lot of the same things of having a lot of the same sort of practice patterns. So it makes me feel a little bit better about what we're doing. And those of you out there that are doing it, just do it like we do it and you'll be better <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All right. Great seeing you. We'll see you soon. Thanks again and appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to follow the podcast, rate it five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore backtable OBGYN on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable OBGYN is hosted by myself, Mark Hoffman, and Amy Park. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovrijinsky. Show notes and social media by Jody Lenora. Administrative support provided by Jim Lee Kennebrew. Music written and performed by Scott Baby Daddy Hoffman. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again next time. The views and opinions expressed 
by the hosts and guests on Backtable OBGYN are their own and do not reflect the views or positions of their employers or any entities they represent.